0: Hello, I'm Andrew Gravani. And I'm Chef John. Welcome to the Chef John Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Chef John
1: Podcast. I'm Andrew Gravani. I'm here with my co-host, Chef John Mitsowich. John, how's it going? Good. How you doing? I got my wool socks on. You know, I got a <laughs> sweater. I always wear my hat. You know, I like the winter. I mean, it's a little lonely at the beach at the winter, but it's kind of nice.
0: Are you cold in the house? Are you one of these people that keeps the thermostat like a 62 and you need the big thick socks and sweater and blanket and all that.
1: Yeah. I like it cooler in the house and then I'll wear a sweater and put my socks on my slippers. You know, I don't mind. I like it a little cooler. I don't like to be like hot, but at this time of year, it's got to crack the window a little bit here and it gets really chilly. Yeah.
0: What's it like for you in December? Well, it can be cold, you know, it can be wintry. And then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, it could be 78. (laughs) And you're like, wait a minute. This looks just like summer did, only maybe a little hotter. So really, there's no rhyme or reason around here. The nights will get down very, very low temps, which is nice. In San Francisco, a little more temperate, not the big swings here. It'll be 85 during the day and it can go down to 35, 40 at night. Like you just never know.
1: And this bi-coastal weather report has been brought to you by the Chef John Podcast.
0: Wait, are we sponsored? Did we sponsor our own podcast? Yes, we did. Like a pyramid scheme. This is awesome. We're a Ponzi scheme. (laughs) Hey, Andrew, after the show, I got a great podcast I want you to invest in. But anyway, enough personal business. Oh, wait, no. We have more personal business to do. I believe this is the part of the show. And if you've never joined us before here on the Chef John podcast, many people's favorite part is the beginning where Andrew tells you how to get a hold of us and how to let us know that you're enjoying the show.
1: This is true. We've hope you've enjoyed our episodes because this season, we have really enjoyed making them for you. And I know we're coming close to the end of the season. We still got another one to go. But we just want to do a little bit of housekeeping here to remind you that even though we've been telling you this the whole season, We know that you love to hear it. So please consider leaving us
0: a review on your podcast platform of choice, along with what, John? A five-star rating would be nice. If you're going to be there and you're leaving a rating and a comment, go five stars.
1: You got to go all out. You got to push all the chips to the middle of the table on this one. These ratings and reviews really help the podcast. So we thank you for taking time to do that. And we always appreciate the time you spend with us. We also want to encourage you to interact with us on Twitter and Instagram at Chef John Pod. We love your comments and suggestions, so keep them coming. And finally, you could leave us a message on our website, thechefjohnpodcast.com, or leave a voicemail, you know, John's favorite part, and we could feature it on a future show.
0: That's right. In fact, so few people call. If you call, you have a good chance of getting (laughs) on. I'm, of course, kidding. You really have very little chance. That's also kidding. It's somewhere in between those two jokes is actually (laughs) the reality of the voicemail line. But- All kidding aside, any interaction is greatly appreciated, especially if it comes with that elusive five-star rating. We would love some of those. But anyway, more importantly, tell us what you think. We'd like to hear from you. Absolutely. That'd be great.
1: Our first segment on today's show, a cocktail story where we tell you stories about us and booze. In bars.
0: Or at home. Oh, can be at home. Oh, my God. All my best stories happen when I'm drunk at home. I didn't know that. All right. Anyway, <laughs> next season, we'll have to lash that one out.
1: Let's tell everyone a cocktail story, John. Let's bring them around the fire. It's kind of chilly out. We're going to like build a fire, and we're going to tell them a cocktail story. So, John, tell us a cocktail story.
0: All right. I'm going to tell you just a epic cocktail story. And I'll preface this by saying I shouldn't tell this story. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> and you know when you're telling a story that's quote-unquote cringeworthy? But you're not even talking about the people listening to the story. You're talking about yourself as you tell it. If you're cringing at your own story, something you should probably be questioning that you should even be sharing. So with that setup, let me tell you. Andrew, are you familiar with the term fern bar? Not in the slightest. A fern bar, and I don't know if this happened in other cities, but it was definitely a San Francisco phenomenon. There were, I don't know, half a dozen bars back in the day. They were called fern bars. Because they had lots of ferns, Boston ferns hanging, potted ferns here and there, big sort of luxurious leather furniture. I don't know what the official decor category would be, but just kind of big old-fashioned bars with lots of ferns that were notorious singles bars in San Francisco back in the 70s, 80s, and so forth.
1: Have a fern, get lucky.
0: Yeah. And I found out about this from a very sketchy individual. You know, in the movie, the family runs a hotel or a restaurant or a bar and their daughter like runs the place, but then her boyfriend slash possibly husband runs the parking for the place or the catering. And he's always sketchy.
1: Oh yeah. He's always sketchy.
0: This is this guy in real life. He ran the parking at this hotel. Anyway. So he tells me I'm complaining about the action quote unquote for a single gentleman. And he's like, dude, what are you doing here? Go to a fern bar. And I'm like, fern bar. He's like, yes, over on Polk street. It's called the Royal Oak. That's the most famous fern bar. So anyway, I had no idea what these things were. He told me what a fern bar is. It's basically a place where singles go intentionally to be picked up. They're there maybe also to have a drink, but mostly that's where other singles go because everyone knows the deal with a fern bar apparently.
1: I'm feeling like lounge suits and like perms. Totally. This is the era.
0: Now I got there probably at the tail end, maybe the later part of the heyday. We're talking early 80s. So anyway, I go check out this fern bar and it's interesting. Meat market's probably a bit strong, but a lot of single people, many more than the usual dives I would hang out at. So you know how everyone has these kind of places. They got their pickup line. They got their A material, their B material, their drunk material. I had, for lack of a better term, I'll call it a magic trick. I did not have a pickup line. I had a pickup trick, which doesn't sound right, but stick with me here. What I would do, and this is the cringy part. This is like, I can't believe I'm even sharing this. I would bring in my pocket, swear to God, I'd bring in a maraschino cherry stem Uh-oh. that I would tie in a knot. Mm-hmm. And when no one was looking, I would put it under my tongue. Mm-hmm. Manhattan was my singles bar drink of choice. I mean, how do you not look cool and totally desirable holding a Manhattan? And I would get to the point where like, hey, you want to see a trick? And the person, whether they wanted to see it or not, was going to see it. So generally, they were polite. These, you know, young, sure, what do you got? So I would take the maraschino cherry out of my Manhattan. I would pop it in my mouth, stem and all. And I would chew for a little while. And I would roll my tongue around the inside of my cheek for a little while. And I make all kinds of faces and make my eyes, you know, bug out a little bit. And then eventually, I would swallow the actual cherry stem. And I would extract the one from under my tongue, perfectly tied into a square knot. (laughs) And I would say something to the effect of, can you imagine the dexterity that it took to tie that cherry stem into a knot only using my tongue? Anyway, that was my Royal Oak Fern Bar. I can't call it a pickup line. It was a hundred times more pathetic than a line. But anyway, that was my, man, are they drunk enough for this to work on? Are they going to know it's a trick? Like I'm assuming other people know the cherry stem hustle, which by the way, in previous iterations was just a way to win a drink. Like, hey, I bet you drink, I can do this. Yeah, you expanded your reach, yeah. And of course, every once in a while, you get the side eye from the bartender, who I'm sure know that you can't actually probably tie a cherry stem into a perfect square knot just in your mouth, using your tongue. But anyway, it was good for a couple laughs. Did it never not work? No. Did it usually work? No, of course not. <laughs> not even close.
1: Were you at least a 300 hitter?
0: No, I had the same average that I had in police league baseball, As I told you, I was a horrible hitter. I closed my eyes when the ball got close to the play, which really kind of puts a damper on hitting. So the coach would have me bunt. I was really fast. And I only hit like 275, 280 bunting every time up. So you know, maybe for certain stretches of the season, I was at 300. But it didn't count because I bunted. And people are like, you're going to bunt and brag about your batting average? So no, I did not do well. (laughs) Nor should I have.
1: No, you definitely shouldn't have. If anybody has ever been picked up by Chef
0: John using this trick, please, please call the podcast. I really just milked this. It was like five minutes of just facial contortions. Hold on one second. My wife overheard me and has rushed in to save me. Yes. Either that or bash you over the head. We also have a fern bar. Yes, there's actually a restaurant that we are quite fond of in San Francisco that is a bar, but it's more of a restaurant. And it's called Sebastopol. Fern Bar. Honey, you said San Francisco. Yes, in Sebastopol. Sebastopol, sorry.
1: Don't worry, Michelle. We're used to him getting stuff wrong. It's all good. It's part of the show. We have a whole segment about this, Michelle.
0: <laughs> so I'll end this segment, or at least my half of the segment, by saying, I never tried that trick on Michelle. She's way too smart. So that was my horrific, just cringeworthy, embarrassing, how, what, what did he... he Yes, I really did that. And thus concludes my high times at the Royal Oak Fern Bar in San Francisco. All right, I'm cringing already. My
1: story isn't as, well, it's not cringeworthy at all. It's actually just, it's kind of funny. So when I was in college, we would hang out at the same bar all the time as a lot of college guys, you know, want to do. And we would go to this one place and we would order our drink of choice were pitchers of Bass Ale. We thought we were like kind of, High on the hog a little bit because we weren't drinking Budweiser or Lohenbrow or Miller Lite. We were drinking pitchers of Bass Ale at the Landing Cafe. And the Landing Cafe was this bar restaurant that was on a pier that went out into the water next to the Staten Island Ferry in the Tompkinsville area of Staten Island. And we would go there and it was down, it was a dark, like dingy alley. And you would go down this alley and go to the bar and overlooking the water. And it was usually live music there. And it was a cool place to go and it was cheap to drink there. And we had a great time and we would go weekend, week out. And then I moved. I moved to Florida for about nine months, chasing a girl, of course. And the inevitable happened, it did not work out. And I went back home. And the first night the guys say to me, yeah, come on, let's go back to the landing. Let's go down to the landing, right? Little did I know that they were playing a trick on me. They weren't going to show up at the landing because two weeks earlier, the landing had fallen into the river. Oh my God. The whole pier, bar and all, fell into the water. So I show up there and there's police tape along the shoreline. (laughs) The bar is in the water and there were no cell phones or anything. I just showed up and I just see the place and I'm like, okay, now I know my guys got back at me for leaving for
0: nine months. Practical jokes before the day of the cell phone were so much better.
1: Yep. You couldn't Google to see if things were real. Nope. You couldn't check out the place ahead of time. And of course, it was no internet where you you knew that something like this had happened and no one told me. So I just show up there. And then, of course, I see what happened. And I'm sure we went out later that night and had a good laugh about it. But (laughs) it's a pretty good trick. You know, like the bar had fallen into the water. You could see it. It was like in there and it was like sideways, half sticking out. What a mess. And that was it. All the college memories and the live music and the pictures of Bassel all fell into the New York Bay. And that's my cocktail story.
0: That is tragic, but also... Somewhat amusing, as all good stories should be.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I can tell totally
0: you. see you standing there.
1: Yeah, they got me. They got me good.
0: All right, very good story. Way less cringy and embarrassing than mine. So we're going to give that one to you. All right. One nothing, Scravani. Well, John,
1: the next thing I want to talk about is the last best thing I ate. Where we talk about, wait for it. Let me guess. The last best thing we ate. Interesting. I'm going to go first this time because I'm so excited about the last best thing I ate. And it comes with a little bit of a story. I've been going to a lot of these new omakase places that are popping up all around New York. This is like a huge thing right now. And I think that it might be tied to the idea that omakase is in smaller spaces, which means less rent. Your food cost is predictable. You know exactly how many meals you're going to prepare every night. And when people aren't ordering and you're giving them whatever's on the menu that night, at the end of the day, there's no food left over. So it's a very cost effective way to run a restaurant. And I think by keeping it reasonable, because I think most of the omakase places that are opening up are about $100 a person all in with four alcohol. And it's a fun experience. So these places are popping up everywhere around my studio in the East Village. There's no fewer than three new omakase places. So this one that we've been going to has been terrific. It's called Takumi, and it's on Essex Street, which is right off the corner of Houston in the East Village. And one of the pieces of sushi they serve is a thinly sliced piece of Kobe beef, beautifully marbled, on top of the rice. They flame it with a blowtorch, and then they put some caviar on top of it. And then there's another little sort of I don't know what it's called. It's like a little bit of a jam, jammy thing that's got a tiny bit of sweetness right on top of it. So it's got the richness, the umami of the meat, and then the saltiness of the caviar, and then that tiny little hit of sweetness at the very end. It is divine it melts in your mouth because it's just beautifully marbled it was so delicious and it's just that one bite right because in omakasa you get all these different bites throughout the night but it's that one bite that just stays with you and i went back solely because that one was so impressive i wanted to have it one more time so i went back to takumi a second time and man was it good
0: that sounds incredible and of course i know being a highly trained professional food person But maybe you could just very, very briefly explain to the audience what omakase actually is.
1: Omakase is a Japanese word that basically means chef's choice, where you go to a sushi bar and you buy an omakase menu. And what basically that means is that you are going to be served the chef's choice that night. And they will bring out one piece at a time of the sushi until the meal is over. This particular one was 13 courses, so 12 pieces of sushi and then some dessert at the end. This time it was like a bean paste mochi, which is a delicious sort of ice cream rolled in rice dough. Most good sushi restaurants will have an omakase option on their menu, but then there are some restaurants which are purely omakase. There's no ordering off the menu. It's basically you go, you know what they're serving, and then if you want extra, you can order
0: extra of whatever you ate. But it stays within those parameters of the omakase. So did I do a good job? You did a great job. And now I can admit I didn't know exactly what it translated to or meant. I just assumed omakase was the Japanese word for (laughs) ermagird. What? Ermagird. Remember the meme? Ermagird. Oh, my God. The woman with the bracelet. Ermagird. (laughs) Ermagird. I thought that was Japanese or Irma because that would be the expression when you have one of those meals. You're like, Irma Gerd. But anyway, I did that once. Now there was several places in San Francisco, as you can imagine, that have great sushi and great omakase. But the problem is the sushi was so good. The thought of not picking my favorites always right. was difficult. Like I trust the chef, seems like a nice guy, but I really want that, 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 and that, and three of those, not one of those. So I did it once, it was really good. But I didn't do it more, I think, because of that reason. So technically, omakase means I leave it up to you. That's how it
1: translates. Mm. So what I said was we're leaving it to the chef, chef's choice. But technically, the word itself means I leave it to you or I entrust in you what we're going to eat.
0: Interesting. You know what I had this week? A trust me taco that you just order. And it's the meat of the day at this one little taqueria in the Barlow that you've been to. And they don't even tell you. They're just like, you know what? It's a dollar or less. Trust us. It's going to be good. It's called the trust me taco. And you take what you get. Kind of the same idea. The omak taco. All right. My last best thing sounds fairly humble. It's just a pan seared chicken, but it's done at the Wood Tavern in Berkeley, California right on the border between South Berkeley and Oakland. And it is unlike any other pan-roasted chicken dish I've had. And I've had thousands of them. And I've made hundreds of them, maybe more. And I've never, ever dialed it in as good as this chef, this restaurant has. First of all, it's semi-boneless. So the rib cage is taken out. It's a half chicken. They leave like the top wing joint. Then The leg is pretty much boned out except for just the leg bone itself. So very easy to eat, lays nice and flat. If you can imagine like a spatchcocked whole chicken, this is a spatchcocked like half chicken, very flat, almost all meat. They sear it in a hot pan, skin on, of course. People roasting chicken without the skin, please check yourself. So they sear it in just copious amounts of clarified butter. Now, when I list my secrets of why restaurant food tastes better than your food at home, it's higher heat more salt. And of course, number three is copious amounts of butter. Absolutely. Whereas we at home, we throw in a teaspoon, a couple of teaspoons, just enough to, you know, lubricate the bottom of the pan. In a restaurant, this is a ladle full of clarified butter, like <laughs> a quarter of a cup just to start off with. So you sear the chicken skin side down in this incredibly hot pan. And then you don't even really turn it over. You just put it in the oven like that. So now it's going into like a 500 degree oven with the skin already seared to the pan and the whole chicken's roasting, the half chicken by whole chicken, where it roasts for about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And then they plate it up. But before they plate it up, they deglaze the pan with wine and lemon. They throw in more chunks of butter. It's served with bitter greens, like endive, escrow that they've coarsely julienned. Michelle says chop. Well, it's a rough thing. It's ribbons. Let's go ribbons. And they do fingerling potatoes and they reduce it down. So it's just the most richest, incredible pan sauce. And as if that wasn't enough, when they serve it or right before they serve it, they sprinkle the top of the chicken skin, which is now already super crispy with this incredible breadcrumb mixture, bread, garlic. Herbs. Did I mention the butter? More butter. Yes, more butter. They pack that on top and they finish it for a few more minutes in the oven. So it is just a tour de force of texture and flavor. And the chicken is because it just went from scratch raw in the pan to your plate it's not like pre-cooked and dried out like some restaurants will pre-cook have chickens and then they'll finish them which is a lot easier by the way but they go a la minute as we call it in the business right the last minute whenever it's ordered it's cooked if you're ever anywhere near berkeley california please do yourself a favor go into wood tavern make sure you have a reservation small place and get the chicken and do not let the generic sounding name fool you it is one of the greatest chickens ever to grace a plate in this universe and maybe others
1: (laughs) all right well that's a bit of foreshadowing john to when we get to pairings about this world or some other world
0: yes and by the way before we move on to the next segment i would like to reiterate the escrow was roughly chopped not julian but anyway that was the last best thing i ever ate sounds amazing
1: Well, as I alluded to, John, a little bit of foreshadowing, because guess what time it is? It is time for pairings, our favorite segment here at the Chef John podcast, where we tell you what we're watching, what it makes us want to eat.
0: John, what are you watching? I'm watching, well, I watched a show that might be my first Peacock offering. Oh, It's on Peacock now. Uh, originally produced, I believe, uh, yes, I'm almost certain, by uh, HGTV, and it's called Escape to the Chateau. Are you familiar? I'm not. Okay. Well, this is a great show, and I will give credit where credit's due. This is a Michelle suggestion, a Michelle oh. offering. So if you don't like it, we're going to blame Michelle. I love this show, but as much as I love the show, Michelle really, really connected with the show, like so many different things about it. But we'll get to those in a minute. The show is about a couple who have obviously totally made up names, but I love them. Lieutenant Colonel Dick Strawbridge. (laughs) Okay. And as if that wasn't enough, he's worked in the British military for many years as an engineer. Of course he did. Lieutenant Colonel Dick Strawbridge. He was married to a certain Angel Adore which again, totally made up, adoring angel. So I think both their names are fake, but I hope they're real because they're super cool people. But anyway, their partner's married, lived in London, I believe. She's a designer, an artist, very talented crafts master, crafts mistress, whatever, can make anything out of anything. Really great eye for design. And he, above and beyond being a military engineer, former war hero with a super cool name, is also a chef. And a caterer, and their side business is doing weddings. So she does the art, the design, the wedding planning, the favors, the blah, blah. He does the food. So because that's what they did for a living, their dream was to find some old broken down chateau in France. They were both total Francophiles. So they find this chateau, this gigantic castle, 45 rooms. It's like humongous. Yes. And they paid, I believe it was $300,000 for it. Now picture a 45-room literal castle in the middle of France with a moat and an orangery and just amazing Walden gardens. Imagine that going for $300,000. That tells you how much work needed to be done on this.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a money pit.
0: And they had to buy it basically sight unseen. They got to look at it like once, and then they had to pull the trigger. So the show is moving them and their two little tiny kids to France, to move into a place that's not even inhabitable, really. No electricity, no heat, no real working plumbing to speak of. And by the way, do not believe it. I think it says there's eight seasons. There's not. There's like 20-something shows. We've seen them all a couple times over. I don't know how they've broken up the season. So don't let that throw you. Just find the earliest one, watch it, and go in order. But anyway, the show is about them week by week trying to fix stuff, fix roofs, fix plumbing, walls are falling down and every 20 minute angel sees something where she goes you know it would be cool if we peeled that old vintage wallpaper off that wall moved it up to that floor and so she's always come up with these impossible tasks and jobs for poor dick strawbridge <laughs> lieutenant colonel dick strawbridge so <laughs> the reason michelle and i loved it so much is we started really getting into this when we first moved in to do remodeling in the kismet. We weren't even living here full time yet. We were doing a couple nights here. Your kindred spirits with Dick Strawbridge. We would watch TV on this little broken down, like 24 inch TV I brought up from San Francisco. And we'd sit on office chairs. We didn't have furniture. And that was our show. And as we'd watch that, we're like, we're kind of doing that. So anything we would have struggled with that day, like, oh my God, the paint wasn't drying. I just put my foot in it. Like that paled in comparison to this poor (laughs) couple. Like at least we got electricity. But anyway, fascinating show. If you like food, if you like French anything, if you like shows about weddings, if you like just renovation shows, HGTV stuff, you will go nuts for this show. And it was always like right on the edge of being so anxiety generating because we were them. We were like, oh my God, I <laughs> oh no. believe there's a short in that panel. And the roof, like they took huge chances and they really locked out with a few of the major things like the roof, which could have been a hundred thousand dollars to fix. They ended up doing for like 15 or 20,000. And so they did have some good luck along the way. And they started doing weddings before they were even really ready. So they would not only have the stress of getting this place remodeled and moving their kids in and school starting and this and that and the other thing. Oh, by the way, then their in-laws come to live with them, too, to make it a little more interesting. (laughs) So then Dick, in his spare time, has to build them a little in-law unit in what used to be the stables.
1: Yeah, when he's got a couple of minutes.
0: And she would just do all these really awesome art projects. And then I have no idea how they found time for this stuff, but they'd be at like a swap meeting, like, hey, that old broken down boat. We could put a barge on the moat, have like a floating bar. Like they would come up with these ideas and then just do them in a show, like find an old van and do like a catering cart where they could serve drinks at the wedding because the bar was too far away from where they did the weddings. And anyway, it was just a very rich menu of everything that we loved at the time and still do. But we were just getting into this place and the trials and tribulations of know a fixer-upper you've been there and watching them do their thing and they're you know like michelle and i not to get sappy total soulmates total like you wouldn't want to do it with anyone else than the person you're doing it with hold on is michelle still listening yeah okay good Uh, (laughs) you hate to waste that kind of material so anyway this is michelle's pick in addition to my pick because we just both really love the show and the timing for watching it was so perfect and I was trying to think of a show that would sort of be a two-for-one. You get Michelle and I's thoughts on this, and that's the one. Because it was the closest thing to Kismet experience on TV that we could ever find. He was like the yeah. Chef John of France. Anyway, that is my pairing. No, it's not, because you didn't even tell us what you're eating. Oh, that's right. I'm like, why well, you eat anything with it? No, <laughs> what we're eating, which is very specific, thank you for checking me, is roasted pork. Because in about the third or fourth episode... Dick, because he wasn't really busy enough doing all the 40 things I just described, he finds this old steel barrel and decides he's going to make a pig roaster out of it. Grabs his welding torch, his metal cutter. And like an hour later, he's got this, like would make any kind of Southern pitmaster jealous smoker. So that was like the signature dish when you book a wedding there, which by the way, feel free to go on Yelp. You can see what they do with weddings. It's pretty impressive and surprisingly affordable, I think, for a chateau. Not that I'm trying to drum up any business for him. But anyway, he would roast a whole pig. That would be the wedding feast. So my pairing is any kind of slow roasted pork, preferably the entire thing, if you can swing it, suckling pig. And he would serve it with all kinds of fresh veggies from the garden. They had this incredible garden. So depending on the time of year, that's what the sides were. And every time he served that, I would lose interest in the painting and the remodeling. And I'd be like, man, you know what I want? Some roast pork.
1: (laughs) That's a perfect pairing.
0: So that is... Michelle and I's official pairing for Escape to the Chateau on Peacock. Check it out with your significant other, especially if you're in the middle of a renovation. And... Hold on, Michelle's got one more thing.
1: And their wedding anniversary.
0: Oh, and the day they got married on was Michelle's birthday. So that put her over the top. Well, you know what I call that? What's that? Kismet. Well done. All right. What do you got?
1: Well, I'm not nearly as sentimental or involved as that, but I am, if nothing else, consistent. I will be talking about the newest entry into the Star Wars universe. It's called Andor, which is available on Disney Plus, and it is a prequel to the original Star Wars films And it's also a prequel to the Rogue One standalone movie that they made back in 2016. So this series follows the main character Cassian Andor, who was a protagonist in the Rogue One film. And it's about five years prior to the happenings in that film, which were sort of the birth of the rebellion against the Galactic Empire. And this is about the forming of the rebellion and It's very different than a lot of the other Star Wars sort of entries that we've seen, especially the newest stuff that's come out of Disney Plus, which all has those sort of Muppet elements to it, right? Where you have like Baby Yoda and the Mandalorian, and then you have like the cute androids or the cute little monsters or Ewoks or some other thing that is sort of more appealing to kids. This show is clearly aimed at adults this is not going to interest children. I mean, maybe the ones who are just complete, utter hardcore Star Wars kids might get into it. But the reality is that it is a darker, edgier, sort of not your grandfather's Star Wars. This is definitely a new evolution in the series. And by using this sort of casting and the idea of the standalone film that didn't include any recognizable Star Wars iconic characters, it kind of frees up the canon a little bit to do what they want to do with these characters. They're multidimensional and they're complicated. Like I said, it's a little bit darker. It's a little bit more adult, not in a sexual sense or anything like that, but just the idea about what a rebellion and what it takes to build a rebellion against a government or an impressive government. And I think obviously in you know today's current politics, These are things that are ever present in people's minds. So if you're interested in Star Wars at all, or if you liked the Rogue One film, the universe will feel familiar, but it's not going to be R2-D2 and C-3PO. So I really, really like the show. I didn't know what to expect from it. I did see Rogue One, but I didn't really remember it. So I tuned in and the first episode, I was like, whoa, this is dark and this is different. And uh, I really liked it. And it's not as sci-fi sort of forward as some of the other stuff. It's really just more drama. And my pairing for this is a little bit tongue in cheek because there's a character who is sort of a bit of a bad guy in it. His name is Cyril Karn. And at a certain point, he gets banished from the Empire Because he made a big mistake and had a whole bunch of people killed. And he has to go home to his mother, who is a bit of a sort of a nagging mom, a controlling mom. And this is a guy who was like, all bluster and whatever. And he was sitting there at the kitchen table eating sugared cereal with the blue milk that you always see in Star Wars. So I was thinking, you know what? I would sit in front of a Star Wars show with a big bowl of sugared cereal with milk till the milk turned blue. And I would feel like I was having some of Cyril Karn's sugared cereal in that scene. So it's not very foodie of me, but hey, listen, sometimes you just want a bowl of cereal and some
0: milk. I think that is extremely foodie because you know yourself. You have the confidence of a true foodie. Just eat what makes you happy. Okay. Well, that sounds like a delicious pairing. As you know, I am a huge Star Wars guy of the originals. After that, I cannot make heads or tails, hide nor hair of any of the other episodes. I don't know what is a sequel to the prequel. Is it a prequel to the sequel, sequel? Is it an equal? Maybe it's not a prequel. Maybe it's sort of a sequel, but close to a prequel. I get so lost and so agitated by why is that person doing? Oh, because that was like three centuries before. I was like, okay, that still doesn't explain anything. So I will start the first 10 minutes of these Star Wars. I call them the other Star Wars movies. Right. What is there at least 40 now? So I've seen three. So the other 37 of them. I'll start. I'll get about 10, 12 minutes in and then it'll just dawn on me. I have no idea what's going on. I don't think I want to know what's going on. Oh, wait, I take the Warriors game. So that's usually the arc of my Star Wars viewing. This one, though, you kind of got me a little bit with it. It's not sort of tied into the other more well-known parts of the franchise. And whenever I hear, oh, it's a little darker, that always perks me up a little bit.
1: Yeah, there's no Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> well, that's good. No Jar Jar.
0: In fact, that's when the franchise might have lost me for good.
1: That's when they jumped the shark.
0: Yeah, when they jumped the Jar Jar. I have to admit, I'm not a huge Star Wars franchise fan, but serial milk, however, in front of TV, I'll do that whenever I can.
1: Sounds like we got a plan. That's it. All right, John. Well, that brings us to our top five. And this week's top five, because there's a little bit of that chill in the air we talked about earlier on, and I started cooking everything in my big cast iron Dutch oven, it is top five one-pot meals. So you're the chef, you get to go first.
0: Well, thank you very much. And like most chefs, one-pot meals, some of my favorite meals of all time. And I'm going to start with number five, Moroccan Harira soup. It's definitely the newest offering in my list. Only discovered this relatively recently. Someone requested it for a video. I'd seen the soup. I just didn't make the connection. Sometimes you've had something, you know, you've seen it, but the name doesn't connect with you. But I'm like, ah, that's that soup. It is basically Morocco's national dish slash national soup. It is a very, very satisfying, comforting soup featuring lentils, chickpeas, vermicelli pasta. And it may or may not have meat. I love mine with lamb, but you can definitely do a vegetarian. There's usually some kind of green or herbs. One weird ingredient, if you can get it, when you buy your celery for this soup, most soups have celery, but you want to try to find those big bunches that have the leaves still at the top. Get the big giant one like you get for Thanksgiving because those leaves are one of the signature ingredients in the soup. And a celery leaf does have a celery-ish flavor, but it's definitely a different sort of profile to it. It is a fantastic soup. So hearty. If you like soups, you will love this. And if you like that kind of hearty, like a lentil soup or a rice soup or a soup with pasta in it, this has all of those things. So it is just really great. All happens in one pot. And it is one of the most hearty, most satisfying, comforting soups you will ever enjoy. Sounds delicious. That is very delicious. Which brings us to number four, chicken a la crema which is, I was going to say Mexican, but the place Michelle and I used to get this was Salvadorian. I'm assuming both cultures have many versions of this. It is the biggest, oldest, toughest stewing chicken you can find, cut up in sections, still on the bone, of course, in honor of you. And you sear this chicken, you make a nice soup broth, stew out of it with lots of peppers and onions. And the peppers and onions are nice big pieces There's some tomato involved, all the usual suspects in the broth, cumin and Mexican oregano and chili powders. And it's finished with a big spoon of crema, Mexican sour cream, very similar to creme fraiche. And we used to go to this place called Aunt Mary's when we first started dating. I say dating. By dating, I mean living together. Since as everyone knows... Not to brag, I moved in after our first date. Anyway, Michelle and I used to go and I would always get this. And the menu was amazing. I always wanted to get other things, but you know, you're stuck, you get that favorite thing and you just cannot get something else. And I would pair it with a melon agua fresca, which if people don't know, it's just crushed melon with a little bit of sugar syrup and fresh cold water over ice. So refreshing with this semi-spicy, creamy, rich chicken stew. They'd serve it with warm tortillas and it is just about the most delicious thing you'd ever want to have in your life. Family owned, everything was amazing. Which brings us to number three, duck gumbo. Ooh. Oh yeah. Now I've told the story of Michelle and I's trip to New Orleans, I won't recap that. But anyway, we had an incredible duck gumbo at the Ritz Carlton there, which inspired me when we got back to San Francisco. I'd made gumbos before, but I'd never made duck gumbo. And just regular gumbo has to be on everyone's top list of one pot meals of all time. It doesn't get much better than a perfectly made gumbo. But when you use duck, instead of chicken, whatever you usually make your gumbo out of, and you sear that duck and get all that duck fat rendered out, and then you make the roux of the gumbo with that duck fat, you are taking this thing up to a whole other level of deliciousness. And as everybody knows, The key with a great gumbo is the roux. It's that flour cooked for hours with that fat, whether it's oil or clarified butter, or in my case, duck fat. And you got to cook it to just a nutty chocolate brown, no blonde roux here, because that's what gives the dish really its depth.
1: I need to pause you there, John. Yes. Tell the audience what a
0: roux is and tell them why it's so important that it gets to right before it burns. Well, a roux just generically, generally in cooking is just a mixture of any kind of fat with an equal amount of flour that you cook into a paste and it's used to thicken stews and soups. I don't know if anyone's had a bad stew or soup that has that raw pasty flour taste. Yeah. That's what happens when you don't cook out a roux as we call in the business. So generally a roux, you got to cook until it smells like cooked pie crust. Then you know your roux is done. That's for regular roux. Like you're just thickening up a gravy or something. For a gumbo, though, the whole funky, deep, dank, kind of swampy flavor profile is from a very well-cooked root, almost borderline overcooked. And then right before it's about to burn and be inedible, it reaches that, I don't know, is it a half-life? There's got to be some cool scientific term I could use. But anyway, it reaches that point. Let's go with Event Horizon. (laughs) Hey, nice and sci-fi for me. Yes, black hole-ish. So right before everything is sucked in and collapses upon itself because there's too much gravity, right before it burns, and it's just a brown roux that could not be any more flavorful unless you burned it. If you've ever had a real gumbo, that is what that flavor is. Because people that have real gumbos are like, there's something in that. Is that the okra? Is that No, it's the roux. They actually cook the roux dark brown instead of... Your average shoemaker at a restaurant, just trying to get it on the special menu that night, will cook it to a golden brown. Fine. But if you really want the true brackish, black water, swampy, real deal gumbos, you got to go almost too dark.
1: So my experience with what you're describing was spoken of by a woman named Maud Anselet who is sort of the first lady of Cajun cooking. Mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of meeting her son at a certain point. I told the story of the cochon du and that was at his home. So it was his mother. Maud basically said, if you're going to make a roux the right way, you got to have nerves of steel to just push it to the absolute edge before it burns. It was just like such a graphic way of describing your advent horizon. You just got to have nerves of steel.
0: Yes, the gumbo gods hate a coward. <laughs> yes. They will punish any hesitation. If you think a Hollandaise can sense fear, wait until you get into the world of gumbos. Which brings us to a number two, pasta fazool, which I spelled in the good old Americanized restaurant <laughs> version F-A-Z-O-O-L just to make you and your ancestors crazy.
1: May I just alert the audience as to how the word has been bastardized? Yes. Because the word for bean... In Italian is fagiolo, and pasta fagiolo is the dish that he's
0: describing. Yeah, so I said pasta fagiolo. <laughs> so anyway, yes, that's what it's supposed to be called. Pasta, isn't there any in there? Pasta fagiale, something. Like that. <laughs> by the way, whenever I say it in Italian, Andrew's like, go back to the Americanized. So I'm gonna go pasta fagiolo, but you guys know what we're talking about. Pasta, beans, very flavorful broth, which hopefully has some kind of meat in it, sausage scraps. Don't use your good meat for pasta possible. Roast something, eat the leftovers, do something else with the leftover leftovers. And then with the leftover scraps, like, yeah, what do I do with this stuff? Chop it up, fry it in a pan, throw in some aromatic vegetables, some nice broth stock, hopefully homemade with the bones or whatever you just roasted, throw in some beans, throw in some greens, handful of macaroni. And if that's not the best one pot meal ever, I don't know what it is. It would have to be my number one choice we're getting to. But pasta fizzula is Michelle and I's go-to. We have no idea what to make for dinner. We'll just whip up a quick one. You're going to make, of course, a big soup kettle's worth. So you're going to have it for two more days to catch all for any and all seasonal vegetables, any and all kinds of beans. For whatever reason, I don't know why we don't use all the Pasta, but there's always like some handful of weird shaped pasta in your pantry. Like, <laughs> why didn't true. I use that whole pound of bow ties? Why do I have three ounces of bow tie pasta? So, whatever you got left over, throw it in. It's even legal to put in two different shapes. Anything goes with Pasta Vazul. But anyway, that has always been one of my all time favorite comfort meals. Something we make at least once a week, if not more. Which brings us to number one. I don't know how to say it in Italian, so I'm going to say it how I said it growing up. Chabot. <laughs> it is a vegetable stew, an old Italian country favorite, which we called Shabbat growing up because the real name is Giambotta or is it Giambota? Giambota. Which my grandparents and aunts and uncles shortened to Giambotta because they just dropped the end of every word off. Yeah, that sounds about right. Ragot, So anyway, we only got the first half of all the words, which is why I talk like I talk now. But anyway, what was... Jambata became Chabat. And then for the kids, it was Chabat because that's how we said it. So for the first 17 years of my life, I thought it was literally Chabat. But this was the most common lunch during the summers growing up. Always was the exact same recipe. I know this sounds insane, but stick with me here. You cut up a package of hot dogs and you cook it in some olive oil and or butter. Then you add your water, your crushed tomatoes, green beans, green peppers, zucchini, and lots of potatoes. And you cook this vegetable stew that gets flavored subtly with this beefy, smoky, garlicky goodness of hot dogs, which is shockingly appropriate for those other flavors. And you cook it into a soup. Once all the veggies are tender, it gets ladled into a big Italian soup bowl, which if you're not familiar, it's a soup bowl that's way too shallow. Yep. Italians never did perfect the soup bowl technology. (laughs) It's either way too deep of a bowl or it's a plate with a half inch lip on it that they call a bowl. And they always insist on filling that up to the brim with dangerously scalding liquid. So if you've never had soup with Italians, that's what you're going to get. Be careful. But anyway, my grandfather, grandmother would ladle that up. We'd always have some stale bread next to it. And that was my favorite all-time one-pot meal growing up. And still to this day, during the summer, we'll make it once a week, once every couple of weeks. But it is the epitome of comfort food for me because we literally lived on it during the summer from ages, whatever, three to 17 for me. And Michelle likes to finish hers with a little Parmesan and maybe a little Italian parsley if you want to get fancy. But it is Simplicity personified, and just Italian home cooking at its finest.
1: Well, I have to say, John, your list is making me hungry. I think I might actually make some pasta fagiolo later tonight. Oh, yeah. But your number five, I'm not familiar with the Moroccan soup. And it's something that the way you describe makes me absolutely want to try it.
0: Watch the video. I can do that. Oh, you'll love it. I say the same thing, to everyone. It will be your new favorite soup.
1: And then your chicken a la crema. That sounds delicious. Duck gumbo. My God, just the roux alone makes me start drooling. Obviously, if I'm going to go make some pasta fazool, I will make it later this evening because I have all of those ingredients, including half of a roasted chicken leftover. And then I'm not that familiar with jambolta. So... I love the idea. I mean, I can see the seasoning of a really garlicky hot dog or a piece of sausage in there to kind of season all that other stuff. And it would be perfectly appropriate, like you said. So that's something that I may actually dive into a little bit.
0: And it's funny you mentioned that because I've served this for guests before and I always wimp out at the end and I will use like a sweet Italian sausage instead of the hot dog. And then I'm always like, you know what? I should have done it with the hot dog. It's better with the hot dog. Go for the hot dog. You know, I'm surprisingly insecure about this kind of stuff. If anyone tried jambata and was like, yeah, vegetables too, is not that exciting. Do me a favor, just throw some sauteed hot dogs in there and let it simmer for an hour and you'll see.
1: I can imagine that. I have my own top five list to share with you, John. Mine is surprisingly French. <laughs> Maybe it's just the cookware. At number five, cocovan. Chicken and wine, which is a classic French dish that quite often has mushrooms and it has vegetables and sometimes a little garlic cooked with wine, usually a red wine. And it is one of my favorite dishes. I eat it at an old style French restaurant in the East Village called Lucienne, and they make the best au van. And I love getting it there. And it's just fall off the bone chicken and this delicious, brothy, sort of saucy, One of those dishes that just warms you up and makes you feel good and have a nice glass of wine with it. It's just a perfect meal. Staying thematically French, at number four, bouillabaisse. Bouillabaisse is a seafood soup, which contains a lot of like shellfish, clams, mussels, shrimp, and you can have a bigger piece of fish in it. It just depends on the kinds of fish you have available and the kinds of things that you want to cook. Also made with wine and vegetables. It is a deliciously slow cooked approach to a seafood stew, I guess it's more of a stew than a soup, but is again, one of those sort of heartwarming midwinter kind of things. I mean, it depends on what fish you can get in season, but you can make a bouillabaisse. I mean, I know I've spoken about the chicken bouillabaisse, which is basically the same preparation made with chicken, which is also one of my favorite dishes. But I would highly recommend that if you've never had one and you love seafood and you love one pot meals, you got to make yourself a bouillabaisse. And that brings me to number three, John, pork vindaloo. Pork vindaloo is an Indian dish, which is extremely spicy. I mean, you could dial it back, but you shouldn't. Because honestly, if you want to experience it the right way, you got to make the pork vindaloo really spicy in the true Indian tradition. It's a deliciously slow cooked pork dish. So much seasoning that gets deep into your bones, man. I got that nice shiny dome. And whenever I have a pork vindaloo, I got to keep an extra napkin around to mop my brow. When we talked about the poll we took a little while back, hot foods on a hot day. Well, man, you can eat some pork vindaloo and you get some air conditioning going because you're breaking out in a cold sweat.
0: Basically, people can look at the top of your head and go, hey, I think... Andrew's been eating Vindaloo.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's the dead giveaway to whether or not I've been eating spicy food. But man, I made one for the New York Times. Alex Witchell was the writer for that one. And she did a pork Vindaloo recipe that I think she had encountered in her travels. And boy, was it delicious. And it got me turned on to that dish. And it's one of those kind of go-to whenever I want something like really spicy, but it's so rich and delicious. That's a great, great dish. And that brings me to two favorites for my last two, John. This one is closer to home. So at number two, Annie's chicken soup. Now, Annie was my grandmother, my mother's mother. And she didn't do a lot of cooking because she was the baker in the family. And my great-grandmother, Sadie, who I've regaled in my book and a bunch of other places, she was the cook in the house. So her daughter, Annie, didn't get a whole lot of chances to do a lot of cooking while mama was alive. And mama lived to be ninety-six. So Annie didn't get to do a whole lot of cooking, but the one thing that she did and she did really, really well was the chicken soup. And she had a trick. With most chicken soups, you cook up all your vegetables and you cook the chicken and everything's cooking in the same pot for a good long while, then most people just kind of put the pasta in and then debone the chicken, put the chicken back in the pot. What Annie would do is she would take the chicken out, debone all the chicken, chop it up, then take out all of the liquid, strain it off, keep it on the side, then take all of the vegetables that have been cooking in the chicken stock and put it in the blender and blend it smooth. Pour that back into the pot with the liquid, with the chopped chicken, and then add the pasta and cook it up. And my God, does this make the perfect, perfect chicken soup. And that blending of the vegetables, it's so rich and just becomes a little different texture than your normal chicken soup broth. But man, is it delicious. And it's one of my favorite dishes. I make it in bulk, put it in the freezer, and have it all winter long. And I am getting ready to make a big batch probably this Sunday. And number one should come as no surprise to anyone In the food world, Julia Child's Beef Bourguignon. It is the ultimate beef stew. It is a perfect meal. It is better the next day, as we've talked about in prior shows, that if you make a stew, it's better to put it in the fridge and eat it the next day. But this is a go-to meal for me, for my friends. I have friends who, for their birthday, they want me to make them Julia Child's beef bourguignon. I've made it for all kinds of occasions. One year I made it on Thanksgiving because I was so sick of turkey, which is, again, something we've talked about in previous shows. So I will cap my list with a pure classic. And again, my nod to French cuisine, Julia Child's beef bourguignon. What do you think, John?
0: I love it. I love the list. I love every single thing on it. I mean, that could be my list. I love all those things that much. I don't know specifically something like Annie's chicken soup, but a chicken soup in general, of course. How is there any better of a one-pot meal? And yes, that old trick of smooshing in the aromatic vegetables into whatever you're making is a great one to do. I mean, doesn't matter what the meat is. doesn't matter what the soup is, the sauce, the stew. Smash some of that stuff in, especially if you were going to strain it out anyway, and it really never hurts. It only usually makes things better. So your number five, kogavan I love it except some bad memories from prep cook days when you would make the authentic version with the pearl onions. Oh yeah. Uh, what a crappy job that
1: is. Oh man, that's the worst job in the kitchen. And please
0: save your cards and emails about, oh, you just blanch them in water and then you, you still have to peel them. It's nominally easier if you pop them and boil them for sure. But they still got the parry knife out and you still are going one by one. And it's like peeling grapes and it's just not the most fun job, but the dish is magnificent. Although I will insist to make a proper one, you start with some salt pork or some, or some bacon or some lardone and you render that out and then brown your chicken and go from there. So yes, love the cocovan although mine is usually a mashup of cocovan and more of like an Italian hunter's chicken type. Oh, like a cacciatore. cacciatore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But same difference, same buzz, same one pot meal. Number four, bouillabaisse. Absolutely, it's a stew, not a soup. So I'll just say that. You got to make sure it's thick enough to count as a stew. Otherwise, we're going to have issues. And don't forget the rouille. You got to have the rouille, which if you're not familiar, is a very simple paste made with stale bread, usually some kind of red pepper, garlic, olive oil. You smush it, you smash it, you mortar and pestle it. And you put a spoon of that over your bouillabaisse and it just... Makes it that much richer, that much more something, something. Do not forget the Rui.
1: I thank you for chefifying my list, John.
0: Pork Vindaloo, I will only say that, fun fact, it's originally a Portuguese recipe that made its way to India with, I'm assuming, Portuguese conquerors. But apparently they brought that flavor profile, which is why it has the wine. And then it was a mashup of cultures and somehow tamarind paste got involved. But anyway, it's a fascinating dish, but it's really originally a very simple Portuguese dish, just pork preserved, cooked in wine vinegar, and then browned after it's pickled, basically. So it's quite a bit different. But anyway, that's why that word... If you look at it, and I'm not going to even try to say it. If you Google Portuguese origins of Vindaloo, you'll see the actual word of the Portuguese dish. Someone is probably doing that as we speak in the control room. But anyway, it is a fascinating genesis of a recipe. Chicken soup we covered, love it. And, you know, Julia Child beef bourguignon, how are you going to go wrong? I will eat that anytime. There's no way to screw it up unless you try to outthink yourself and use a nice cut of beef, and then you're screwed. <laughs> Cheapest, toughest, most sinewy piece of meat you can find, preferably from somewhere lower down the legs of an animal. And that's what you want for your beef bourguignon. Something very, very fatty, lots of connective tissue, collagen, which as you well know, turns into gelatin once we stew it. And that's what makes that literal stickiness in a great stew. It is glue. There's glue in your stew and that's what sticks to your ribs. And that's the last comments I'm going to make about your very, very fine one pot meal list.
1: Well, uh, John, I'm just going to cap this off by telling you that the control room indeed came up with the Portuguese dish, and I will do my best to pronounce carne de vinha dalhos. Yes, that's it. Or vinha is where vindaloo comes from,
0: so that's the Portuguese origin. So there you go, people. If things ever slow down at that next cocktail party, you can always hey, I hate to change the subject. You guys know where the name vindaloo comes from, anyway. <laughs> Feel free to keep that in your back pocket, people.
1: As you know, here at the Chef John Podcast, we love giving you a peek behind the curtain. Stories as visual food artists and some of the things that we go through, either the triumphs, the failures, or just some funny stories. So, John, give
0: me a peek behind the curtain. All right. I would love to. Here we go. Pulling it back. You know what doesn't stay the same all year? Uh... You're like, wait, give me a second. There's like a 100 million things. No, what I'm talking about is the hours of usable, filmable, photographable daylight. Oh, yeah. Oh, you go from too many to not nearly enough. Not nearly enough, man. So this time of year, you're lucky, really lucky if you get a couple decent hours of light, mm-hmm. which for regular folks not a problem. You maybe suffer from a little seasonal affective disorder, or as I call seasonal defective disorder. But for us poor recipe video people, ladies and gentlemen and others, we have a problem in the winter. We try to do the same amount of work in a day as we did in July, in December, and it doesn't quite work out. Because you know, you only have that very small window of beautiful light. And if you make a mistake, Or something doesn't go quite right, which is every shoot, every video, you are in trouble. If it's July and you're talking about like an 18-hour day, big deal. You just make it over. You could drive to the store, get all new, drive back, have a beer, watch a TV show and still have time to film it. Whereas (laughs) this time of year, you got one shot. You got one chance. And you know a great way to make mistakes? Try to go too fast. Oh, yeah. Try to think about it try to realize you're running out of light in time, you will guarantee make more mistakes and it's just a vicious cycle. So peek behind the curtain for this time of year, when you're doing video recipes, also trying to get some decent photographs, everything has to go perfect. And even if it does, you might run out of decent light. So very much of a challenge this time of year. I try to think of things that are kind of quick and maybe a little simpler. Unfortunately, this time of year, those aren't the recipes we're doing. Not at all. We're doing slow cooks, (laughs) long braids, slowly stewed. Make sure you preheat the oven and let it heat for an hour. So it's all the foods that you need all day that doesn't work in the winter. And the recipes I should be filming in the winter are the ones you do in the summer when you got all day and they only take five minutes, like a quick sandwich or something. So it is very opposite. The types of recipes and the type of daylight you get and amount of daylight and that is my peak behind the curtain.
1: Oh boy, man. I am so familiar with that peak. You preach, brother. Just preach. Because food shoots of any sort, video, stills, whatever, you're working and you're chasing daylight. Back when the cameras weren't that great, it was even harder. Now the cameras are a little bit better in low light, so you get a little bit more time out of it. Right. But man, if you started in daylight and you are running out and then you got to try to switch to artificial light, that's going to be a giant holy mess.
0: And that's the thing. You got to kind of decide I'm going to need to use studio light throughout the whole video. And if you do that with natural light, you get away with it. It still looks usually pretty good unless you're doing something crazy. And if you go all natural light, that usually looks pretty good unless you just get dark, of course. But if you do the, uh uh-oh, it's four 30 <laughs> and I still got 25 minutes of shots here and I haven't even graded the cheese over the pasta. I'm filming. I got to click on this light. So I'm going to turn it on really low and then I'll maybe I'll turn it up a little. And that never works. Nope. <sighs> Anyway,
1: It is the bane of our existence. Unfortunately, the sun gives us everything we desire for food visuals. It gives us beautiful food and it gives us beautiful light, but it switches it up when we need it the most. So I am so intimately familiar with this struggle. So John, thanks for sharing that.
0: I'm going to pull the curtain back. That was enough of a peek and I'm going to let you go now.
1: I will open my curtain now. And my curtain right now, if you opened, is my studio Filled with boxes of props that I have buried myself under over the course of 20 years in this business. And the problem with being a prop collector and having a bit of a prop house is these things pile up and a lot of things go out of fashion. And then they come back in fashion. So you don't ever want to get rid of anything. And when you realize that you have 5,000 pieces of cutlery and a couple of hundred platters and 25 cake stands and space is limited, it becomes a bit of a burden. Right now, I'm at that crossroads at my studio where I don't want to let go of this stuff, but I got no choice. I have a hundred surfaces and I have an entire floor to ceiling shelf unit filled with glassware. And honestly, I look at this stuff and I'm like, I have all these fond memories of it. I can connect the visuals I've made with the props. I love seeing them there. It's almost like when you have books, you know you're never gonna read them again, but you love having them there because they remind you of when you read the book. I have an entire studio full of stuff like that. And I'm at this crossroads right now where I have to sort of emotionally disconnect from a lot of this stuff and start letting it go. I have a friend coming who is going to take away six or eight boxes of props that I'm donating to his studio. So they're going to a good cause. They're going to be loved. They're not going to be abandoned or orphaned or end up in the landfill. They're going to go live another life with another food photographer. So this is one of the things that you don't realize how attached you get to Some of the things that you work with, especially when you make art for a living. And I have to let go of some of my babies. So that's a peek behind my curtain, John.
0: Well, very good peek. And normally I generally almost always identify with your peaks behind the curtain and challenges because they're very often the same kind of things. I have the opposite. I have no props. I have the worst collection of props ever of anyone that's ever tried to do what I do. I use the same four plates and the same three placemats. I have one napkin. And just whatever fork I happen to grab out of the tray under the counter, that's what I go with. So I cannot relate to your, can't even walk into the room anymore because there's so many props. <laughs> that's a problem. But the worst problem is like, oh, I just made this beautiful look and whatever. And now let's just put it on that same plate we've used.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I can see that problem. But no,
0: thank you for that peek. I would like to have that issue one
1: day. Well, maybe I'll ship some of these out to California
0: for you. All right. I was kidding. Don't do that. All right, that's it. What do we got left?
1: Well, John, um, I think you got to tell us what we learned today.
0: Oh, that's right. Well, geez, where do I start? We learned so much. I mean, I think you could probably turn this in for some college credit if you played your cards right. Well, first and foremost, in case you aren't familiar, there is definitely less light in the winter. (laughs) If you were wondering (laughs) what was happening there. It's a long story. The earth tilts. I don't want to go into it. It's a whole thing. But anyway, less light in the winter. So that's one thing we definitely learned in case you weren't familiar. We also learned that if you need a few kitchen tools, items for your culinary adventures, I know a guy (laughs) who might be selling them out of the back of his car at a parking lot somewhere on the Jersey shore. I'm sorry. Jersey coastline. Thank you. And I had to chuckle when you mentioned you might have someone coming over to help you out. You know, the old saying, a friend will help you move. A really good friend will help you move a body, (laughs) but it takes a really, really, really good friend to move your kitchen crap out of your studio. (laughs) I was remembering that old saying. So we definitely learned that if you need a wooden spoon that has three holes drilled in the middle for no apparent reason, Andrew has that. He will never photo it again. I got that one. He's not even sure why he used it, but it looked cool. You might be able to get that at a decent price. Yep. We also learned that bouillabaisse is definitely a stew, not a soup. In fact, if you serve bouillabaisse and someone thinks it's a soup, your bouillabaisse sucks. It's not thick enough. That was harsh. I got to give it to you straight. We are in the learning segment. There's no pulling any punches here. It's tough love. Make your bouillabaisse thick. And don't thicken it with starch. Thicken it with fish and seafood. It should be so chock full. Is it chock full or chock full?
1: I believe it's chock full only because the famous coffee shop in New York called
0: chock full of nuts. Chock full of nuts. OK. Make sure your blue base is so thick because it's chock full of nuts that no one mistakes it for a soup. That would be a horrible crime against nature. And the most important thing we learned today, if you ever find yourself in a bar a fern bar to be exact, or any kind of just really sketchy singles type bar that you really shouldn't be in in the first place. And some joker at the bar is trying to bet you or worse yet, trying to pick you up or trying to win a drink, claiming they can tie a cherry stem into a knot with just their tongue before you put your money down on the bar. Make sure you check under their tongue first. (laughs) Great advice, John. While you're checking, don't be surprised that the bartender asks you both to leave. Yes. Excuse me. I don't know what you two are doing, but could you please check his tongue out in the parking lot? Yeah, you just can't do it here. But anyway, that is sort of the highlights for me. There were so many other things we learned. I don't even go into the actual useful things, but those are the things that stuck with me. And I think we'll all agree a ton of education went on. I feel enlightened. And that was before the show started. Imagine how you feel now. Glowing. (laughs) That's a good word for it. By the way, the pairing I'm going to maybe do for the next show, foreshadowing. There might be the word glow in it. I don't wanna give much away. Wow. I mean that's a first
1: for us. You're foreshadowing into another
0: show. I'm gonna give away too much. So I'm gonna stop and we'll just end the show. And there's only one official thing left to do, and that's say goodnight, Andrew. Good night, Andrew.